So, so great to be able to share this time with you, to be able to continue this series in the book of Nehemiah. If you have your Bibles, please take them and turn to Nehemiah chapter 4. If you don't have a Bible with you, you're welcome to take one of those in the pew. Uh, You're actually welcome to have that Bible as a gift if you do not own a Bible. Uh, Also, this morning, uh, if you don't have one with you, the verses will be up here on screen in just a little bit. So again, we'll be in Nehemiah chapter 4 today. A couple of announcements as we get started this morning. Uh, Some of you were here this past Wednesday evening. Some of you were not. But uh, Gwyneth um, Adams was baptized on Wednesday evening, and so that was wonderful. And uh, that's a picture of her and uh, her dad, Thad. And yes, our baptism garments are maroon. I assume that's for the blood of Christ. I'm assuming. I'm just going to guess. We'll go there anyway. We are in week five of an eight-week series on the book of Nehemiah. If you missed lessons one through four, you can listen to those on our website at www.am.church. Before we get into our text today, also, we have a blood drive going on, and they have about three or four more spaces open. They're going to be until 2 o'clock this afternoon, so please go give blood. Please wait until after the sermon, because I don't want you to miss this, all right? I hope and pray it's going to be a blessing uh, to you. Last Sunday, we asked the question, what do I do when the walls of my life collapse? And we talked about how as individuals, that we sometimes face those seasons in our lives. Sometimes it may be a day or two. Sometimes it could be a week or two. Sometimes it could be much longer when things just seem to fall apart. And it's like no matter what we do, we can't find our bearing. And so we looked at the life of Nehemiah, and we saw an individual who was prayerful and a man who was faithful and a man who made a plan that was based on prayer and based on faith and how he worked that plan to God's honor and to God's glory. And so we're going to keep this question in the back of our mind today, but we're going to modify it just a little bit. And we're going to change the question to really think this morning in terms of what do we as a church do when we become familiar or when we encounter others in whose lives the walls of their life have collapsed. Last week you met Josh and you heard the first part of his story if you were here, an individual who is familiar with what happens when the walls come tumbling down. And if you weren't here, we'll catch you up in just a little bit, and you'll be able to hear the second part of his story this morning. But this is really the question that I want us to try to wrap our head around this morning, that as a church, what do we do as the body of Christ when the walls of someone else's life collapse? Now, the good news is, in Scripture, we have multiple passages that we could study to help us understand what our response is could be, and in many ways should be, when people around us experience brokenness or profound pain or an addiction or whatever it is, fill in the blank. But we're studying this particular season from the book of Nehemiah. And so in Nehemiah chapter 2, we look back to where we were a few Sundays ago, and we see that Nehemiah 
was a man filled with faith, and he, he heard the voice of God, and he lived into what God called him to live into, which was to restore the walls of Jerusalem. And so in chapter 2, verse 18, we read, I also told them about the gracious hand of my God on me and what the king had said to me, and they replied, let us start rebuilding. And so they began this good work. But there's this phenomenon that occurs over and over and over in the book of Nehemiah, and one of the things that's so wonderful about having this book to study is that it parallels our lives. It's almost exactly what happens when you and I begin a good work, the following takes place. Nehemiah chapter 2, 19. But when Sanballat the Horonite, Tobiah the Ammonite official, and Geshem the Arab heard of it, they mocked and ridiculed us. What is this you are doing? They replied. Are you rebelling against the king? And so we roll forward a little bit more. You would think these guys might be kind of a, a pest of sorts, but no, they're sticking around. And not only are they sticking around, they're really, really trying to get inside the head of Nehemiah and get into the head of the workers and to derail them for the task that God has put before them. So we go to chapter 4. Now remember from last week in chapter 3, they've started construction on the wall. Everybody's pitching in. Everybody's doing their part. But when Sanballat heard that they were rebuilding the wall, he became angry and was greatly incensed. He ridiculed the Jews. And in the presence of his associates and the army of Samaria, he said, what are, what are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore their wall? Will they offer sacrifices? Will they finish in a day? Can they bring the stones back to life from these heaps of rubble burned as they are? Tobiah the Ammonite, who was at his side, said, what they're building, even a fox climbing on it, would break down their wall of stones. And so there's this fascinating, fascinating thing that happens here. They're hurling these insults. They're coming against the people of God. They're trying to derail them from their purpose. And what does Nehemiah do? He prays. And it's an interesting prayer. And I'm really, really grateful that Jesus showed up because we're not called to pray these kinds of prayers anymore. But at this particular time, they were at war. The purposes of God were being derailed. And so Nehemiah prays what's called an imprecatory prayer. It's just a big fancy word that says, Lord, bring the pain. Okay? Bring the pain. And so this is what he prays. Hear us, our God, for we are despised. Turn their insults back on their own heads. Give them over as plunder in the land of captivity. Do not cover up their guilt or blot out their sins from your sight, for they have thrown insults in the face of the builders." Now, in Christ, this prayer has changed. In Romans 12, for example, we read that vengeance is, is whose? Do you remember? It is God's. And who will repay? Yeah, it's okay to talk out loud in church. It is God. God God's got it. God's going to take care of it, okay? But at this particular time, contextually, it's appropriate, again, because they're at war. So in Nehemiah 4 and 6, we continue to read, after the prayer, he still prayed up, so we rebuilt the wall until all of it reached half its height. For the people worked, and I love this phrase, the people worked with all their heart. But what do you know? Here we go again. 
When Sanballat, Tobiah, the, uh, the Arabs, the Ammonites, and the people of Ashdod heard that the repairs to Jerusalem's walls had gone ahead and that the gaps were being closed, they were very angry. And they all plotted together. You see, up to this point, it was an individual or an individual or two, but now all of these individuals that are kind of seeing this wall begin to grow, they're, they're going to get together and they're plotting together against the Jews And they come and fight against Jerusalem, and they stir up trouble against it. But what happens then? But we prayed to our God and posted a guard day and night to meet this threat. So this back and forth continues for the remainder of the chapter. The more threats his people endure, the more Nehemiah Praise, and the more he prays, the more threats they endure. The more the people work, the more insults and threats they endure. The more insults and threats they endure, the more they work. And ultimately, there is this tipping point that occurs. Because we can try as hard as we want, and the world can try as hard as it wants, but the plans of God will not be derailed. The plans of God cannot be overcome. And we think about this passage, this is not just about a wall. It's about something much greater. It's about the purposes of God. And so Sanballat and his entourage, they start a propaganda campaign. Now, we don't really know a lot about that, right? Propaganda campaigns in our culture. Okay. I thought I might get more of a chuckle out of that. We, we, we know a lot about propaganda campaigns. So let me tell you what's going on here. It makes no difference if what they say contains truth or not. It makes no difference. They can make up as much stuff as they want. Here's what matters to them. What matters to them is that the Jews stop listening to God and start listening to the opponents of God. That's their end game. That's their goal. So the threats were like this. Your work is so poor, even if a fox came up out of the woods and put its paw on the wall, that would cause that wall to come crumbling down. And so here's what's fascinating to me as I think about this passage. The tactics used against the builders of the wall roll the clock forward all these centuries. The tactics have not changed. Truth doesn't really matter to a lot of people in our culture. Absolutes such as Jesus is the only way to eternal life have gone out of style in the hearts and in the lives of a lot of people. But people who have been consecrated, people who have been set apart as sacred by God through the blood of Jesus Christ, are not just people who follow a version of the truth. We are people of the truth. The truth that is only found in and through Jesus. If we believe otherwise, it is because we have allowed our hearts to experience the same thing the Jews on the wall experience in theirs. Because I want you to notice what happens when we begin to listen to voices that are opposed to God's will and not just listen to them, 
but allow what they say to creep into the way that we think and the way that we view the world. The text continues. Meanwhile, the people in Judah said, the strength of the laborers is giving out. And there's, there's so much rubble that we can't rebuild the wall. This is the first sign of discouragement. Also, our enemies said, and they're quoting their enemies here, before they know it or see us, we will be right there among them and we will kill them and we will put an end to the work. And then the Jews who lived near them came and told us ten times over, wherever you turn, they will attack us. Do you see how discouragement begins to creep into the minds of the Jewish people? Do you hear how the criticism begins to wear on them? How the threats begins to wear on them? So might we find ourselves... In a similar situation, if we stop listening to God and start listening to those who show no interest in God or His Word, church, may we always remember that we are a people who have been consecrated. We are set apart as sacred to God through the blood of Jesus Christ. We are not a people who fall for threats. We're not a people who fall for lies, nor do we measure success by worldly definitions and metrics. Nehemiah certainly did not. In response to the lies and threats from the outside and the withering spirits from the inside, he lives even more fervently into his mission. Nehemiah 4.13, Therefore, I stationed some of the people behind the lowest points of the wall at the exposed places. This would be the most vulnerable spots. Posting them by families with their swords, spears, and bows. And after I looked things over, I stood up and I said to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people, do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome, and fight for your families, your sons and your daughters, your wives and your homes. You remember earlier I said there's a tipping point? Well, here it is. When our enemies heard that we were aware of their plot and that God had frustrated it, we all returned to the wall, each to our own Work And then there is this powerful line in Nehemiah 4.16, from that day on, from that day on, this was a turning point in the construction process. This was a turning point when people of God began to truly understand the purposes of God. And they saw God's protective hand on them, and they lived into the work. From that day on, there were some things that happened, things that involved faith and some things that just involved working the plan that they had made. Half of the people worked and half of the people watched for signs of the enemy. The suppliers, they carried supplies in one hand, and they held a weapon in the other. The builders constantly kept a sword by their side. The rallying trumpet was ready to sound. I love this imagery in verse 20. Whenever you hear the sound of the trumpet, join us there. Our God will fight for us. Nehemiah and the people, we talked about this the last several Sundays. This is not going to be something new to you. Nehemiah and the people, they made a plan and they worked a plan. 
The plan was bathed in prayer. It was a plan that was filled with faith. It was a plan that was adaptable. And it was a plan that withstood opposition. As you look at this list, think with me for just a moment. Can you imagine trying to build a house with no plans? Hey, sweetie, we've been saving up our money. I think it's time we built our house. What architect are we going to use? Oh, I don't know, babe. Let's just wing it. Can you imagine? I think it'll be okay if we just dig a pretty good-sized space out in this field and just start putting some concrete down. We'll throw a few beams up, put a roof on this thing, and I think it's going to be great. Well, that's ridiculous, right? You're not going to do that. Could you consider starting a business without a business plan? So tell me about your business. Well, I really like to sell stuff, so I'm, I'm going to be excited about selling things. Well, what things are you going to sell? Oh, I don't know, just stuff, because I really like to sell stuff. Well, where are you going to put your business? Uh, what's your supply chain look like? Uh, have you thought about profit and loss? And, um, no, we're just going to get out there and have fun being in business. Oh, come on, that's ridiculous, right? Can you imagine Aggie football with no coaching? Okay, be nice. All right, be nice. But seriously, how successful would any team be if the coaches on the sideline brought the team together and said, well, uh, those guys look pretty big. If I was y'all, I'd just run faster than they do. I mean, can you imagine? If that's it, that's the plan? There's no game plan other than just, hey, run faster. Of course not. You want more money. You want a better whatever. Fill in the blank. Make a budget. Create a plan. There is power in planning. But there's something that's very important to remember. Making a plan is only half the battle. A plan is only as good as our desire to work it. Someone may say, but you know, planning takes away trusting in the leading of the Spirit. Then I would say invite the Spirit to the planning party, okay? I think that's what Nehemiah does. God, you're all in this doesn't take away from the spirit being able to move and lead and guide as appropriate where there is no plan when we live into just whatever feels right there is a much greater likelihood of chaos in our lives last week you heard a story from an individual who is familiar with chaos and i'm going to invite josh to come back up to the stage So last week, Josh walked us through um, a lot of his history growing up in a very, very difficult situation uh, where he didn't have a lot of affirmation and um, a lot of emotional uh, abuse and, and even other types. Also struggled with, uh, for many years, uh, some, some drug use and alcohol use, just trying to anesthetize the pain over and over. Uh, there were some consequences, right, Josh? Yes, uh, and ended up uh, finding yourself in some difficult situations. And one of the most difficult was um, possibly not being in a situation where you were going to be able to see or be able to have any time with your daughter, yes. uh, Phoenix. And so Josh, last Sunday, brought us up to a turning point. Uh, and I'm going to let you take it from there and just kind of tell us the rest of the story. I got to the point where I got the letter from the attorney general 
and it basically said the biggest mistake I ever made in my life um, actually didn't happen. So I had the chance to finally really get clean and deal with the issue that I had caused myself. Um, you know, signing my rights away and um, basically walking away from Phoenix uh, was the right decision at the time because, I mean, I was in no place to be a father, but it was the most painful thing and it was the reason I just kept on drinking. It was just to numb that pain, to doing drugs. Um, but once I got that letter and I called them and started talking to them and figured out that what happened, the paperwork wasn't filed, um, it was my turning point. It was the uh, beginning of a very, very hard journey. And um, so at, through the rest of that year, I was trying to catch up on child support, talking with lawyers, seeing what I could do. And during that process, my mentor from the Harleys in College Station, Michael Yamada, passed away uh, the day after Christmas. So Harley came down to College Station, started kind of looking at the store, and then he brought me back down here. And through that, I got to reconnect with all my old customers and reconnect with my friends. And I got to make new connections with the customers that Michael helped. One of them happened to be David Gardner. And through the time that I was down here for the first part of the year, David and I became very close. Um, at that point, uh, I thought, you know, this is just going to be my life. I'm going to live here in College Station. I'm going to run the store here. But Harley had to have open heart surgery. So Harley brought me back to Tyler. So once again, I had to pick everything up and move. Um, while I was down there, I just started partying again, and it was just the way of life for me and Tyler was I had my friends, we had our bar, we had everything we needed right there, and during that time, I started listening to like Les Brown, um, Eric Thomas, a few other people, but one morning um, in November, Steve Harvey's The Jump came on. If y'all have heard that video, you know how incredible it is if you haven't i do suggest just going on youtube and just listening to it because it is beyond amazing and right about that time it was november 10th uh i was texting david about coming down and seeing him about bringing some clothes they posted on their instagram account uh, a post that said now hiring so i screenshotted it and texted it to dg uh saying how much laugh out loud just as a joke, because I was about to come see him. Well, he didn't take it as a joke. He took it as, this is my opportunity to bring Josh down to work for me. And then about a week later, I started talking to him. And then I started talking to Sophie. And we started working out the deal for me to come back to College Station to work for him. Now, during that period, uh, Phoenix and her mom and her stepdad moved to Temple. So Temple is about an hour, 20 minutes away from College Station. So that was the moment that I, the first time I prayed in a very, very long time. And I just said, if this is the place that I can go to have a shot at getting Phoenix back, um, I'll say yes to the job. I said, but you have, you have to line everything up, make it as easy as possible. Um, once I said yes to, uh, to 
DG. The next day I found uh, a condo that was in my price range right by the store. Um, the move, everybody showed up for it. It was the smoothest move I've ever had between Tyler and College Station. Um, the only bad part of that is while we were driving down here, uh, the clutch and the brakes in my car went out. Um, so we pulled over to the side of the road. My stepdad was in the U-Haul. My mom was in the car and they were like, what are you going to do? And I would just remember looking and saying, my future's that way. Past is there. We towed the car back to Tyler and we just loaded the U-Haul up in my mom's car with everything that was in mine, including my dog. And we just kept driving. And then from there, we'll fast forward a little bit. Uh, I started working at David's. Um, and that place became the foundation that led to everything happening in my life that changed it. Um, the first thing that happened is I woke up one morning and I wanted to go to church. I just had a, an urge to go to church. And First Baptist was right by my place. But in between my place and First Baptist is another church. And so um, I was riding a bike at the time because I didn't have a car. So I rode my bike to this church. Um, I walked in, was listening to the sermon. They said, the president of the church, he's a prophet of the Lord, and there's a firebird. And I was like, where am I? I was like, church has really, really changed since the last time I was there. So I Googled where I was, and I was at a church of Latter-day Saints. So I rode a bike to a Mormon church, and it's kind of funny. That, so you know, ultimate irony, right? That's yeah. Uh, yeah. I just okay, rode a bike to a Mormon church. That's good. So, uh, I mean, that's if anybody's going to have that experience, it's me. The pastor after I left came out and was like, "Hey, you can talk to my recruiter," and I was like, "I don't understand any of this. I got to go." So uh, the following Tuesday at work, I was talking to Sophie and um, I told her about it, and she said, "Well, before you recruit to Mormon, come visit my church." And so the next Sunday, uh, Sophie brought me to A&M Church of Christ. And this is Sophie Newton, who's one of our members here. Yeah. So uh, she kept bringing me because I was on a bike. She'd come pick me up. She really went out of her way to help bring me to this church. And then her husband, Matt, um, they helped introduce me to Dustin at the time, who was a pastor. And I got to meet with him a few times. But after he left... Um, I've always had a problem with depression. I've just never dealt with it because dealing it for me was excessively drinking, doing drugs, or just being in a bad mood and just being angry. Um, so after Dustin left, I just got angry and my depression just really started creeping back in. And I would come some Sundays, some Sundays I wouldn't come and, or I would come and I would leave. And then another friend of mine that I met at David Gardner's uh, told me to just basically suck it up and keep going to church. And so I just kept coming. And then that few Sundays later, uh, I met you. And you just tapped me on the shoulder, scared the crud out of me. I mean, nobody talks to anybody in the balcony. It's just the, the rule. <laughs> you, just, you guys know that up there, right, in the balcony? Like, it's just a perch. Like, we just have our little perch up there, and we just watch everything, and it's fun. And so he tapped me on the shoulder, introduced himself, and he was like, hey, I want to get to know you and talk to you. And, and he left, and I was like, yeah, whatever. So 
they start, uh, Kelly was preaching that day, and then again, he comes up, taps me on the shoulder, scares me again, because I don't think he's coming back, and ever since then, uh, Greg and I have meeting on every Sunday, sometimes on Monday we go to lunch, but he started walking me through what it meant to be a Christian, and I started opening up and telling him about Phoenix and everything, and his answer to me was pray. And I was like, that's, that's your answer, is to pray. So I started to pray every day, just praying, God, please let me see my daughter. Please let me see my daughter. Um, fast forward a little bit. Again, I kind of started getting discouraged. My depression was really eating at me. And uh, I had another, the same friend challenged me to just basically say, Lisa, let's meet. And uh, I said, hey, I want to meet with you. And it took a while, and I started praying that God heals me and her's relationship first uh, so that there would be no anger when I came to see Phoenix. And we set a date for Sunday. Um, you were preaching that day after service. I came up to you, just a wreck. I was just nervous, and he and I prayed over it. I just drove around town thinking of every bad thing I had done that she was going to hit me with. And I saw that uh, DG was at work. So I went in the parking lot, called him, said, hey, I'm coming in. And he and I sat down and just kind of started talking. And he gave me the best advice that anybody's ever given me. It's if you've hurt somebody, they're going to hit you with everything. But don't get defensive about it. Ask them what else. Ask them what else. Keep getting into it until you get to the core of what you did that hurt them. And then you just have to drop your guard and just take the hits to really fix a situation. And so DG and I prayed about it, and I ended up driving to Temple. It's an hour and a half, but it felt like four hours driving there, just going through everything. Um, nervous. Uh, it was around, no, it was right after her birthday, and Phoenix's birthday is November 11th. So I made her uh, an orchid necklace. Uh, I have a tattoo of an orchid branch with her name on it. And so on the back of it is the same writing that uh, her name is on my tattoo is the same as a pendant. So when I got to the restaurant to meet Lisa and her husband, Michael, who I had never met, um, as soon as I walked in, there was just a peace. Just, a th I mean, it was just thick. Like you could just feel peace in that building. And I walked up and I, I hugged Lisa. I shook Michael's hand and I just took a deep breath and I was like, all right, just take the first shot. There was nothing. Um, it was a about two-hour conversation of just they forgive me. And they wouldn't get in the way of me seeing Phoenix if that's what she wants. And it was the complete opposite of what you and I thought it was going to be. And that it was just God answering the prayer to mend that fence. Um, as I was driving home, Lisa sent me a picture of Phoenix wearing the necklace. And about four seconds later, my phone went off again, and uh, Phoenix was texting me. And so uh, for the rest of that month, Phoenix and I talked every day. Um, and then we finally agreed upon a time for me to meet her. And it was right after Christmas. But during Christmas, um, after I got to see her, I was listening to a T.D. Jake sermon and it was talking about the ch children of Israel, how they got the blessing before they made the covenant with God. 
Um, back in the day, it was circumcision. Now it's baptism. You and I were talking about when I should be baptized. And after I heard that sermon by T.D. Jakes, I told you what I learned from it. And you said, that's what baptism is. So I had got the blessing to you know, be able to talk to my daughter, but I had never really made the covenant with God. And so December 15th, was it? Uh, I was baptized here. Um, two weeks later, I actually got to meet Phoenix and see her after nine years of not seeing her, not having contact and everything. And I think we have a picture. Um, that's, that's Phoenix. Um, we had dinner at IHOP, and it was the best time of my life. But, um, awesome. But I had to tell her why I had, wasn't around, what happened. And that's the hardest thing I ever had to do. But um, God's good. And if you pray and you just have faith in him, he'll move a mountain. He really will. And so uh, we got to do uh, a little bit of Christmas shopping together. Um, I started, I got a tree for the first time in I don't know how long. I started getting decorations, but I would go to stores and I would text her pictures and she was picking all the ornaments and everything. So it was our way of kind of making a Christmas memory without actually being together. And um, then like in Nehemiah, um, the enemy came back. And the enemy for me is my depression. Um, it's the things I say to myself in my head. And as hard as I try to deal with it on my own, I finally had to admit that I had an issue. And it was a T.D. Jake sermon um, talking about how when Moses went back up to the mountain and God told him that he had to carve the commandments in the uh, stone. He did all the work the first time. Moses had to do all the work the second time. And that's where I was because I walked away and this was my second time with him. And so I had to start doing the work. So I started seeing a therapist and uh, dealing with uh, the issues of my past and my depression. And um, you and I talked about it. I talked to it with a few other people and I admitted I can't do it on my own. You know, boxing wasn't helping. Working out wasn't doing anything. Seeing my daughter wasn't doing anything. It was just time to admit that I needed real help. So I started taking antidepressants, and they have just really, really helped. And through that stage, Phoenix and I weren't talking. It was just, it, it is what it is. And she finally explained to me that she just was angry with me because I wasn't there. And she had all right to be angry with me and had all right to not text me. Um, but through the antidepressants and having a clear mind and a great relationship with God and having a relationship with you and other friends in the church, um, I have more of a clear head. I mean, there's still things that pop up and I still have bad days, but they're not as bad as they used to be. I mean, you can see how much the antidepressants have helped me. And it was such a really a pride issue of why I never got the actual, the right help before. But as soon as I started taking that medicine, uh, 
God started moving again and I got to start seeing Phoenix again. And we've basically seen each other, you know, once, a, sometimes twice a month since then. And through that and meeting with you, um, I've made some very close friends. Um, one of them is here today and is going to join us. So I'll let you. Yeah. Um, I want to, uh, first of all, just make a couple of observations here. Uh, Josh is actually heading to Temple this afternoon, so he's going to go spend some time with Phoenix this afternoon, and that's going to be an incredible time. But one of the things that, that we tried to do very quickly in our relationship was put Josh into situations where he could start pouring into the lives of others, particularly people who could relate to his story. So I'm going to ask Brian uh, to come up here and join me for just a few moments, uh, if you will, uh, Brian. And some of you all know uh, Brian. He grew up in and around this church, and uh, some of you will know his mom and dad, uh, Mike and Claudette. But we're so thankful to have him here this morning. And I just had a question I wanted to, to pose to him. His, his background is somewhat similar to Josh's, a lot of, a lot of parallels, a lot of similarities. Um, some broken wall moments, right? Some collapsed wall moments that you've experienced. But I just want to ask if you would take just a few minutes and just share some of the blessings that you've experienced as you and Josh have connected. Well, to back up a little bit, prior to meeting with Josh, I had come back from Houston in 2017 after losing everything in Hurricane Harvey. Um, <clears throat> I was battling very severe depression, anxiety. I was abusing Xanax on a, a level that most people can't even comprehend. Um, I had suffered from seizures from it, and uh, my health was deteriorating. Um, <clears throat> so I was, in a, I was in a really bad, bad place. Bad, bad place. Uh, I'd started talking to Greg uh, before I met with Josh. I, I'd, been, I'd met with Greg a few times, and, and Greg got us introduced. And, and I remember our first conversation. We we had uh, lunch together, and uh, he told me his story. And that was the first time I had ever sat down with anybody who 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 I thought I could relate to, or I could t you know who understood what I was going through. Um, and I don't. I know I ordered food, but I don't think I ate anything because I was so into what he was saying. Uh, fast, you know, fast forward from there, we've developed a wonderful relationship. We meet five, six days a week, uh, fellowship together, work out together. Uh, <clears throat> it's been a real blessing. Looking back on everything that's happened, God had his hand in all of it. He had his hand in all of it. Uh, I think God, in, in a way, well, and not in a way, he, 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 he knew I needed to have, the, have something shaken out of me to get my attention. <laughs> so he, God put me on my knees. And uh, <clears throat> through my relationship with, with God, through prayer, tons of prayer, uh, through my relationship with, with Josh, uh, I can honestly say I'm happier now than I've ever been. Mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. 
So, so these guys are still a work in progress, right? Oh God, yes. But, yes. but aren't we all, <laughs> right? Aren't we all a work in progress? And um, they're, they're rebuilding the walls of their lives. And they're not doing that alone. One of the things that's so fascinating to me is Josh doesn't have a theology degree. Uh, he hasn't really even set in on that many Bible classes throughout his lifetime. He's never preached a sermon, but he has more authority because of what Jesus has done in his life to speak into Brian's life than I could preach in a, in a thousand sermons. And so God is using him in a, in a powerful way to, to bring about hope and, and, and courage and change. And, and it's, it's the way that church, I think, is supposed to work. I think it's the way that church is supposed to work. One quick question, and we're going to wrap up. Our time is really getting away from us. Josh, what's, what's next for you? Um, I have a, a request for the church. Um, I need your help in prayer. Um, first, I, I want help in prayer because I know when two or more are gathered, God actually really hears the prayer and he answers it. Um, I want the opportunity to spend the weekend with Phoenix where she comes here. And so there's a lot that I have to do to really earn that trust, but that's the next step in our relationship. And so I just want you to be praying for us to be able to do that. And then the second thing is sometimes God places you somewhere for a season. And in that season, you're going to meet some of the most incredible people that will put you in places that you need to be and give you encouragement when you need that encouragement. And sometimes that season ends. And my season at David Gardner's has ended. Um, David and I talked this morning. It was an incredible experience on both of our parts. He loved every minute. I loved every minute of it. And if it wasn't for David Gardner's, and the people there that I met that, I mean, God really used that building as the fundamental for my change. Meeting everybody that worked there, coming to this church, it just, David Gardner's was that place to make everything happen for me. Um, but I'm not a jeweler. I am a clothier. Um, that's my passion. Dave and I had a conversation Monday. He was telling me how passionate he is about jewelry. Well, David knows my passion is the same for clothing. So we have parted ways, and I am hoping by the end of this year to open my own men's clothing store here in College Station. So I'm meeting with Greg. I'm meeting with Sid, uh, meeting with some other people. God, this morning at the 8 a.m. service, introduced me to somebody with a CPA license to uh, help me really move in the, the business part because I don't know it. I know how to sell clothes. So I just want your prayers for me in Phoenix and that my dream job will finally be mine. Thank you. So as he's describing the rebuilding of his life in the next phase of his career, and, and you've had a little bit of Brian's story, one of these days maybe we'll be able to share more about what God's doing in Brian's life, but these brothers can't do this alone. So I want to ask you this morning, and, and I know that all of you would like to respond to my invitation that I'm about to make, but if we could have maybe 
maybe you know 10 folks or so that would just say i am willing to stand with these brothers i am willing to pray for them to trade phone numbers with them to encourage them to step into the messy days to step into the good days if you know a little bit about business if you know a little bit about recovery if you know a little bit about rebuilding relationships that have been broken uh, I'm just going to ask you, if you will, to come up here on stage right now and stand behind these two brothers. And it doesn't need to be awkward. Just get out of your pew and come on up here. And you guys can just stay seated if you'd like for a few minutes. Yeah, this can be men, women, families, those of you who are already part of their lives, those of you who might like to be. So I'm just going to ask you guys to fan out behind them, if you will, please. And just stand behind these two. So as you see these people that have said, I'm in. I'm all in so that we can go all out. Um, I want you to envision this this morning basically as we're building a wall. We're building a wall. And these are folks who said, I will be the brick and mortar. I will help you restore. We're going to trade numbers. We're going to be in prayer for each other. I'm going to call. I'm going to text. I'm going to check in. I'm going to challenge you. I'm going to push you. But I'm going to do that in love. So it's a pretty good looking wall, isn't it? Looks pretty strong. Looks pretty secure. So I want you to notice what happens uh, if I uh, ask Charles to just take three or four steps back. Just you step back, sit. You and Lori stay right where you are. Oh, I want you to notice what just happened. We have a breach, right? We got a hole in the wall. Charles, come back. We need you to shore that wall back up, okay? Um, that's what can happen when the voices start to get into our heads. No, I don't need to be part of the wall. I'll let somebody else do that. But I want you to pay close attention to this verse one more time from Nehemiah 4. After I looked things over, I stood up and said to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people, don't be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your families, your sons and your daughters, your wives and your homes. So what is the point of the lesson today? It is you, church. You're the point. May we not be afraid of anyone or anything. May we be a church who fights for our families, our sons and our daughters and our spouses and our homes. And may we constantly remind ourselves that there is a big difference in fighting for and fighting with. So next Sunday, I'm going to begin a step-by-step -step process, yep, a plan, to show us how we as a church can do just that, to be a church where people can find hope and where people can live with purpose. And so between now and then, I'm just going to ask you to have one simple conversation with someone. There's lots and lots of people to choose from. Have one simple conversation with someone whose walls have collapsed or are collapsing or are showing signs of where God can do great things through one conversation. So have it. 
And that story may never be told from the stage, but it will be trumpeted throughout all eternity in heaven. And I think that's a conversation worth having. We're going to stand. We're going to sing together. If there's anything in the world we can do to pray for you, bless you, encourage you, share your story with others so they can step into your brokenness, let's do that while we stand together and while we sing.